The problem with sexual disenchantment is that people don't actually behave as if sexual disenchantment is true because people actually don't feel sexual disenchantment to be true. That's probably also true for dis disenchantment of the natural world. You know, we, we have a deep intuitive feeling that actually sex is special for some reason. And may, it may be as, as basic as, you know, that that has evolved in us for some reason. There's, a, there are, a, there's something adaptive about us believing that sex is, is special and different from other social interactions. Um, regardless, that's how human beings feel about it. And if you go around trying to pretend otherwise, you will generally make yourself miserable and make other people miserable. Welcome to yet another episode of the Reenchanting podcast. I am Belle Tindall. And I'm Justin Briley. And if this is your first time stumbling upon our podcast, we basically take it as an opportunity to chat to some extremely interesting people about how and if the Christian faith can re-enchant certain elements of culture and society. We are part of Seen and Unseen, so do find us there along with all of their other content. And we are joined today by Louise Perry. We're so excited. Very excited. Thank Very you. Excited. Just a little disclaimer from the top. <laughs> Um, that we will be talking, quite frankly, I hope, about all things sex and probably a bit of sexual violence as well. So this is your warning that if for any reason this isn't a good time to be indulging in those topics, consider yourselves warned. Yeah. Um, Louise, welcome along. Uh, you, I'll just give a little, uh, you know, rundown of what you do. You can correct any of this if it's in any way outdated. Journalist, author... Advocate for Women's Rights um, and your recent book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, I think has been making waves since it was published, perhaps more waves than you anticipated it would make. Uh, but essentially, it's about the way you changed your mind about parts of the feminist movement and its embrace of sexual freedom and hookup culture and so on. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm very excited. There's a, uh, the recommendation that I think Julie Bindle gives at the, at the forefront of it. And I think she ends the recommendation by saying, if you're one of those feminists that think that this book isn't for you, give it a go anyway. And I held my hands up. I was one of those. So um, I'm so excited to dig into some of that with you. But we always start with the same question because here we are, Lambeth Palace Library uh, in front of a pretty impressive skyline. And so we always start, we ease people in with what books are on your bedside table right now. So I am currently reading Hags by Victoria Smith. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, just been published and Victoria is a friend, um, which is all about the demonization of older women, um, which is also a theme that I touch on in the book. Yeah. Um, I've also um, confessionally been rereading Harry Potter. <laughs> I've just finished the third book and I actually found that um, I hadn't read it since becoming a mother. And now I find parts of it so much more emotionally affecting than really? I thought. Wow. Yeah, so much okay. more. Yeah, because I, I think that, you know how many children's books are about orphans True. in some capacity? Yeah. And when you read them as a child, you're like, yeah, whatever, yeah. orphans. Like, it just kind of rolls off your back. Whereas when you read them as a parent, they just, you know, they really strike you in the heart, or at least they do me, so. Yeah, I, I've been, I get the chance as each of my kids has grown up to reread the Narnia stories. Mm to them and so it's a bit of a you know a guilty pleasure of my own you know to, to be able to kind of dig back into them yeah. and I have very similar feelings about some of the, the stories there it's it's a good excuse so mm. perhaps as as I, I, know, I know you've got a fairly new new child uh, almost two almost so we're not yet reading Narnia. so we're or, or Harry Potter I imagine no. but but there I'm sure you'll get another another chance to mm. you say well let's talk about your work for a second um because I so obviously doing homework for this I thought before we dig into your book, um, you, I've seen you called an anti-feminist, a counter-feminist, a new Puritan, an arch-conservative, I think was when, a radical feminist, which is interesting with all the others. So I thought just from the top, I would love to give you an opportunity how and or if you define yourself to sort of put your own labels on yourself, where do you sit right now? And is that static or actually does that depend on... When you're being asked. I've been called both left wing and right wing completely confidently by different that crazy. which I always think is really interesting, the fact yeah. that people can be absolutely certain in one way or another. Um I mean, if I in terms of political compass, I'm probably somewhere on the economic left and the cultural right. Okay. 
sometimes called the post-liberal quadrant, <laughs> which is actually the quadrant where most voters are found. But almost no, yeah, politicians has to be found. It's basically the most underrepresented quadrant in British politics and in other, and in other um, countries as well. Um, in terms of feminism, I mean, I do, I do call myself a feminist. Um, the term that I've sort of adopted was one coined by Mary Harrington, who's a um, writer unheard, an author and a friend of mine, which is reactionary feminist, which she okay. came out with a few years ago. Yeah. And she kind of came out with it as a joke. Because obviously it's preempting people who are going to call you a reactionary. So to some extent, it's yeah, almost sure. reclaiming the term or having a bit of fun with the term. Yeah. Um, but I also think that it actually describes something interesting and meaningful, which is quite different from, say, being a conservative feminist. Because if you say that you're a conservative feminist, what people will think you want is to just return to the 1950s, you know, the 1950s with capital T. Yeah, sure. Um which I actually don't think we should do because I think the 1950s were a really weird decade for all sorts of reasons and there are all sorts of dysfunction in that period that I don't think we would want to imitate. And in general, I think trying to sort of imitate any one mm. decade is um, madness. You're setting yourself up for failure. Um, I think what reactionary feminism does is it has a completely different relationship with the recent past. And it says, look, there are lots of ways in which our contemporary culture is extremely strange compared to how all other people in all other times and places have lived. Okay. And there are some elements of that strangeness which make us miserable and which are unsustainable. You know, our relationship with the natural world, for instance, and the atomization, dislocation that many people are experiencing in contemporary society and so on. These are bad themes. Um, what we can do that is instructive in looking at the past and looking at other cultures is to say, what are the common threads here? And if we don't believe in the progress narrative, if we don't think that history just keeps getting better and better, you know, the arc of the universe bending towards justice, the Martin Luther King phrase, if you don't believe in that, which I don't, um, then we can start from the premise that actually our ancestors weren't bad and stupid, that they probably had some insight into human beings and the sort of social structures and ideas that actually produce flourishing societies and, and, and allow individuals to flourish. And if you can look at those common themes across different societies, you can use that as a guiding principle in understanding what's good for people and what's good for women and what's good for families. So one example I would give is every society has some sort of notion of marriage. Okay. It's unheard of, except for us right now, <laughs> you know, for there to be no formally recognised institution of marriage, which is sort of sure. universally accepted by everyone. Um, that can obviously look like different things. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a starting point you can go from. You can say, okay, no other society has ever managed to flourish without something like marriage. That suggests we probably can't either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. You say um, that uh, your experience working at a, um, a, let me get this, a dad, right? A women's refuge? Was that? Rape crisis centre. Rape crisis centre. Um, really formed your the feminism that you have now. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how formative that was? Um, it's partly my age, I guess, because I did this straight out of university. So it was that point oh. where you're still um, learning about the world. Mm. You know, I think that anyone who hasn't gone through some sort of ideological shift normally at about that age mm -hmm. um, has has made an error somewhere because I think that you, you ought to change your mind about things. Mm. You ought to... You know, any, anyone who just agrees with absolutely everything that's offered to them as part of the sort of political package of their in-group is probably lying to themselves in some way. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so I was going through that period anyway at that age. Um, and also because it was a confrontation for me, someone who'd been schooled in academic feminism and I'd done women's studies at Oxford and, you know, the, very, the, the real ivory tower stuff. It was... A, it was um, it was a reminder that that's not really what the real world is like and it didn't really map. The, the stuff that I had learned in seminars didn't map onto reality. Okay. Um, what kind of stuff? What was the specifics of what you were seeing versus the, the theory that was supposedly explaining the culture or the behaviour that, that you were coming in front of it? So one example is that um, academic feminism has almost nothing to say about motherhood. And almost nothing to say about actually biology, even, you know, that what I was taught at university had so much to do with uh, gender performance, 
and appearance and representation and all the superficialities of gender, which, you know, if you understand them in those ways, then you can understand them to be easily dissolved mm. through cultural reform. Whereas actually that's not how people live their lives, that the differences actually between the sexes are profound on a physical level in particular. And, um, yeah, women and girls who are not part of that academic sphere um, are... I mean, yes, I just, I remember having to sit down with, with um, young women um, who I was working with and go through some of the crazy forms that we had, you know, asking them whether they were like polysexual and that sort of thing. And obviously these girls had no idea what I was talking about, like this ridiculous jargon that had been invented by the academy. I was just so embarrassed to have right. to repeat it. So, yeah, so I mean, I was already kind of sceptical of a lot of um, academic feminism, but that was really the nail in the coffin. Right. I mean, the book, in a sense, came out of your experience of having been schooled in that sort of academic feminism, as you call it, and then the experience of seeing the real life situations in front of you in the Rape Crisis Centre. And um, and the book comes, for those who haven't read it, to, you could argue, surprisingly Christian conclusions in terms of sexual ethics and so on. You, you basically come out by the end saying, there is a single marriage and monogamy, and it's it's the best of the options out there, if you like, for safeguarding women's uh, dignity and value and um, well-being, essentially, in, in a, what is otherwise a very uh, difficult socio-evolutionary kind of package that we get. You weren't writing it from a position of faith. Um, you weren't doing a very sort of socio-evolutionary kind of analysis of the whole thing. Were you kind of surprised at where you eventually landed as you sort of worked those arguments through? I sort of convinced myself during the writing of the book, actually, because I, I started off, yes, with more radical feminist ideas. And on many points, I do still agree with radical feminism mm. on issues like prostitution and pornography and mm. and so on. Um, where I diverge from a lot of radical feminists is, for instance, on the marriage issue and in having more um, respect for some of the traditional institutions in terms of their capacity to protect women's interests and children's interests. I think that what we've seen post-sexual revolution, um, which obviously coincides perfectly with the process of dechristianization, which is the same great historical event, mm. really, of the last century, is um, has been a tearing down of those institutions and norms and an attempt to sort of um, reconstruct society on a new image. And I think that that has proved so far to mostly have been a failure and has actually left mostly the most vulnerable people worse off, including women and children. I mean, I think that the real the real losers from the sexual revolution in particular are poor women. Why so? What, what are the specifics that you would point to? Because there are some ways in which women are inherently more vulnerable than men in all times and places. You know, we're smaller physically than men. We're more vulnerable to violence. We get pregnant, um, which has all, you know, is, is a joy and a wonder, but also brings with it all sorts of... Mm. Um, pain and vulnerability and poor women are particularly um vulnerable because of you know someone like the sex industry it has always been the terrible threat <clears throat> hanging above poor women's heads and what we've seen post sexual revolution has not actually been any effort to um protect women from that fate it has instead been a repackaging of it to say that you know sex workers work Sex workers empowering all that kind of liberal mm. gloss over what is actually an ancient form of um, exploitation and oppression. So I don't think that we've actually, um, I don't think that this social transformation has done a good job of actually delivering fairness and equality and all of the things that many of its proponents hope for it. I think that it has actually, the phrase I use in the book is um, freedom for the pike is death for the minnow. If you just insert greater freedom into a, into a system, mm. you know, if you push the freedom lever, some people will benefit from that. The people who benefit from that are usually actually going to people, be the people who were already in the strongest position to begin with, who were already in a position to take advantage of these new, these new opportunities that freedom brings with it. And that will sometimes mean exploiting weaker people. The example that I use in the first chapter of the book is Marilyn Monroe and Hugh Hefner, um, 
partly because it's a lovely neat story because they were both born in the same year and you know and they spent uh, their lives in in LA most, most of it um and they're also buried in the same place because Hefner um in his final act of creepiness beat the crypt next to I didn't know that and for some reason yeah. when I read that I found that so I don't know why but I found that so creepy it's like that really hit me on like a yeah on a level that I wasn't expecting Particularly given because Hefner, they never actually met in life, but he had the the success of Playboy was partly the result of the fact that he had um, published news of Marilyn without her consent in the first issue um, that he bought from the photographer, but she didn't see a penny, you know, and um, she was apparently really distressed at this, but, okay, you know. Um, this this is the thing, though. You know, Hefner was one of these figures who was able to have an absolute ball during the sexual revolution because basically all the limits historically placed on his behaviour, like the expectation of monogamy or whatever, fell away. And the pill arrived on the scene and allowed him to more easily persuade women into bed who might otherwise have been reluctant. And, um, yeah, he was... Um, he was... He has... He's a sort of totemic figure in terms of, you know, the great beneficiary of the sexual revolution... Unlike, I would say, Marilyn Monroe, who actually lived a fairly miserable life. You um, you coined the phrase sexual disenchantment, which obviously caught my eye because we're on the Reenchanting podcast, so it's arrived from Max Weber. Um, can you talk me through exactly what you mean by that, Tim, um, sexual disenchantment, and, and how you are seeing that play out? So I, sh- I should say I didn't coin the term, I stole the term. Stole the from, term. <laughs> from Aaron Sabarium, with his permission, so maybe not stealing. Uh, who's an American writer who wrote a great essay on this some, 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 some yes, 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 some years ago. Um, uh, what Aaron means by the term and, what, and the, the way I use it as well is, um, yes, yeah, so so taking from Weber's idea of disenchantment of the natural world that yeah. that proceeds from the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. um, the same sort of process happens as part of the sexual revolution, where previously um, sex and all the things associated with it, marriage and so on, um, was enchanted had a had a not just a special status but had a sacred status and then you have that falling away over the course of the second half of the 20th century until we have this new idea of sex or or you know the kind of progressive mainstream has a view of sex that it actually doesn't really mean anything that you can buy it, you can sell it it's not much different from sort of making someone a cup of a cup of coffee playing tennis with someone or whatever it's just a kind of neutral social act which you can imbue with meaning if you want to, but you don't have to. And actually the idea that it does have any kind of um, specialness or, God forbid, sacredness is anathema to this worldview. The problem with sexual disenchantment is that people don't actually behave as if sexual disenchantment is true because people actually don't feel sexual disenchantment to be true. That's probably also true for dis- disenchantment of the natural world. You know, we, we have a deep intuitive feeling that actually sex is special for some reason. And may, it may be as, as basic as, you know, that that has evolved in us for some reason. There's there are there's something adaptive about us believing that sex is, is special and different from other social interactions. Um, regardless, that's how human beings feel about it. And if you go around trying to pretend otherwise, you will generally make yourself miserable and make other people miserable. You know, one example of this would be people who try desperately hard to overcome feelings of jealousy in, say, polyamorous community where people are having multiple simultaneous relationships with one another and are trying to do it ethically and are trying to sort of suppress all these natural instincts towards jealousy. It's astonishingly difficult, actually, to do that. And what normally ends up happening is that people try and try and try and it blows up in their faces and it's actually really rare for people to successfully kind of manage those relationships. Similarly, I would say, particularly for women who are trying to have... Um, enjoy casual sex and view hookup culture as just sort of new leisure activity that's suddenly been destigmatized and has been made available to women. It's a very dominant view um, among feminists and sort of not particularly 1990s onwards, which is really the, the sort of the target of my whole book. Um, what there are some women for whom I think they really can enjoy casual sex like that, who can really have sex like a man. So that's the expression used in Sex and the City. Yeah. Um, but actually the vast majority of women don't really feel like that. And what they will normally end up experiencing is is deep instinctive feelings of discomfort and distress 
which are very difficult to articulate. Because if you believe in sexual disenchantment and if you're trying to pretend that actually sex doesn't mean anything, how can you how can you express this? I mean, the only way, the only terminology you really have available to you is the terminology of consent. But consent is a very simple binary. This is a legalistic idea, really. And it's quite possible to consent to something in legal terms, but to not enjoy it or to be made unhappy long-term by it, or to be left with kind of vague feelings of distress, which might be quite hard to articulate. And that is what an enormous number of young women experience in hookup culture, which is the prevailing sexual culture um, among young people in the 21st century. I guess to put it brutally, or to put it as if sex isn't unique, then sexual assault isn't unique. But we know that it is. Yeah, you if yeah. sex isn't sacred, then rape isn't particularly awful. Then rape is just theft. Yeah, yeah. And sexual harassment but is we just don't see that. Yeah, people that... don't. People don't feel like that. No, and exactly. that's not the way we legally regard it. No, either. yeah. So we 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 do we we have codified in law and in certain sort of social ideas that sex is different. Mm. Um, and yet we sort of the sexual disenchantment charade goes on yeah i i noticed that um you mentioned sex in the city which was kind of the defining sort of program for you know these young women in manhattan sort of living their best life free to sleep with whoever they want to sleep with uh, there's there's a spin-off series 25 years later that features sarah jessica parker again in carrie bradshaw mode and and i haven't seen it. I'll, I'll be honest but i've read a few reviews and it feels like they're still kind of trying to do the same thing, but at 25 years older. And and I felt slightly kind of sad about it because I felt like, is that sort of, is that life kind of, if 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 you kind of go, go to that stage and you're still kind of just trying to get something out of, you know, the next person, the next bed that you're hopping into or out of. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's me very much showing my kind of where I come from on this issue. But But do you get the sense that, that sex in the city attitude is still the prevailing one or do you feel like culture is starting to turn against that in any way that that sort of maybe seeing that there were some downsides to this as well as you know the, the supposed upsides my uh friend Catherine d um who's a, a, a journalist has an interesting theory about sex in the city which is that it was always kind of intended as a joke <laughs> as an in-joke i mean it is actually funny we forget this as a comedy. yeah, yeah. um but that it was written by and intended for the people in that kind of Manhattan milieu, you know, the people who were um, materialistic and 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 um, a bit vain and bed hopping and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And it was sort of intended as like a um, we do these things and we hurt ourselves and and, and sort of poking a bit of fun mm. at the in group. But it was so enormously successful, no one really got the joke because people. <laughs> from outside of that world saw it just glamorous yeah it's straight yeah, yeah. yeah. some of its own success and yeah. yeah and saw it as being aspirational yeah um and there are lots of other examples um, com- um subsequently of that being held up as a really aspirational model i mean it's basically women behaving like terrible men right um it's women behaving like don draper except without without even being married you know like that which is always just struck me as a really bizarre kind of um basis on which to base any kind of feminist project to say, well, men have always behaved like um, Lotharios and, you know, and narcissists and whatever. Women should get a bite of the pie. <laughs> Rather than saying, actually, maybe if men behaved a bit more like women, that would be a, mm. that would be a better a culture. But, but this, is a, this is a very deep-rooted thing. And um, seeing masculine ways of doing things including sexuality as being aspirational is very very deep within on feminism and i would i'd say deep within the culture and i actually think i mean i generally don't use the word patriarchy because i think it isn't very helpful i it, i mean in in an anthropological terms it obviously has a very clear meaning mm-hmm. a culture where um positions of power and authority are, are, are exclusively male um 
we don't actually live in one of those though I mean, we did up until relatively recently but not anymore we've had a whole bunch of female prime ministers that you know it's clearly not the case that those sort of positions of power are reserved for men only but I think that what people often mean when they use the word patriarchy in a much vaguer sense not in the strict anthropological sense is a feeling that masculinity is just higher status in a vague kind of way you know like um words associated this is something that Jermaine Greer observed many years ago that words associated with women will often over time become derogatory so words like mistress or tart which used to be quite neutral terms will over time become um shameful um or when professions see an influx of women into them so teaching would be one example medicine is now another example right now you sent you tend to see a drop in status and a drop in pay for those professions there's something about and it's hard to pin down and it's hard to know exactly what the cause is but I think people I think people correctly recognize it to be true that there is a general feeling that men and masculinity are just a bit more high status and I think that the trap that some strains of feminism have fallen into is to is to accept that accept that premise and say well in that case what we want is for women to be more like men and the problem is that women can't be men for a whole bunch of reasons. And actually women trying to be men normally just makes women more unhappy. So what would, this is a huge question. If that's not a valid solution, what would you put on the table instead? Trying to reassert the value of women and of femininity. Okay. So for instance, you know, reasserting the value of motherhood rather than simply saying that um, women should be permitted to avoid motherhood at all costs which is basically what most second wave feminism has said to this point and is that what you feel our current culture is saying whether obviously or uh, so you know in a kind of subconscious way to women today or especially just a housewife right how often do you hear that said about any other you know um yes i think that being um I mean, it's not quite, it's not that people sort of, it's not misogyny per se. I mean, misogyny is actually quite rare and true misogynists. There are very few of those. And people don't hate mothers. You know, we all love our mums. And I think the figure of the mother in a cultural way is still um, prized. But we don't enormously respect them either. And you see this in public policy. I mean, just now we just had the, we just had the budget come out with um, enormous sums funneled towards encouraging women back into the workforce because the work of the home is not considered to be as valuable. Just straightforwardly, the government says so. As as as, well, it's not as valuable to the budget. Yeah, the government. it's not as valuable in terms of tax revenue. Mm. And the government doesn't have any way or hasn't really tried to find any way of putting a number on the value of um, mothers looking after their own children which a lot of women want to do. They just, they do. It's a, it's, it's no matter how much we try and persuade women to just behave like men and to go out into the workforce, just as men have always, well, not always done, but whatever, just as men do. Um, poll after poll shows that an enormous number of women still feel this great sort of tug towards the home. And yes, the cultural messaging they receive is that that is, that is a, a flaw in them. Right. It's, it's interesting because in a sense, you're saying things that at one level are, are almost politically incorrect, arguably, you know, in in, mm-hmm. in, in our culture. Um, but you're not saying them because I don't get the sense at least you're saying them because you're some arch conservative who just wants to return to this, you know, some golden era of the 1950s. But because you genuinely feel like, if anything, just from a socio-evolutionary uh, point of view, we can't deny certain aspects of, of who we are because of our past and, and the way that we're shaped by by all kinds of forces in that sense um what's what's been the response though i mean are you uh are you finding a lot of pushback to this sort of you know your own change uh, as the way you looks at these things and uh you know what kind of response has the book had as it's done the rounds now so much more positive than i thought right i really was sort of girding my loins i thought that this would be I remember actually in the final weeks before the book was about to be published, I thought, have I just ruined my life? <laughs> I can't stop it now. It's out there. You know, it's, going, it's on its way to bookshops as we speak. Um, but actually, it has been enormously positive. Really? Enormously, 95% positive. 
Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. I think what I would say about the book, um, which is an absolute like grenade of a book, it'll rock your world if you <laughs> is I think coming at it and I think you none of you what you um have written comes from a particular a Christian perspective, which is interesting. Um I um and we've got Lambeth Palace, so <laughs> take three guesses. I do come from a Christian perspective. And yet I I think that I position myself maybe a bit more um less conservative, which is really interesting. But I think what I think about the book is read it because if you disagree with it, it's still an incredibly written book and it's a genuine joy to read. And so it's quite fun to disagree with. But if you agree with it, you need to shout it from the rooftops because it's what you're doing is in a very bold and very brave way trying to explain this phrase is coming up a lot on this podcast. Maybe it's me. You're sort of trying to explain water to fish, if you know what I mean, in a really bold way. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it's very much, and or you might find yourself thinking a, a bit of disagreement and a bit of agreement. But either way, I think, I imagine that there's a lot of people who read it who are like genuinely thankful that they feel that you're putting language to what you have already said is quite a are feelings that are hard to put language to. I've had so many messages of various kinds or or women coming up to me when I've done events or whatever um, from young women primarily or their parents sometimes who who did not know this stuff. Mm. I mean, I sort of think the book is actually shockingly obvious and I do say, like a couple of times, the book, like there's nothing really original in here. Like this is, this is like I literally have a a, a a a chapter, a final chapter called "Listen to Your Mother," where I say, "Look, actually, this is basically old wives kind of stuff. Like, yeah. ask any matriarchal figure, and she'll basically be able to tell you all of this because it's actually just sort of um, there are some sort of essential truths about human beings which most people will come to learn as they spend enough time in the world and. Uh, you know the project that I am the political project that I'm taking aim at is one that actually tries to deny those but I think we'll always ultimately fail because you can't fight against reality for for that long and win but I've had so many young women who will say to me I didn't know this this is completely new information I have no idea and um and actually feel amazingly I mean this was this was what I wanted all along that having read someone put it down on paper gives them permission to listen to their intuitions and to not try and sort of do battle against reality anymore. I got this lovely email, for instance, from the mum of a young woman who, I won't, I won't go into details, but basically she had, the young woman had, had, had heard me on a podcast or something and had read the book and her mum had read the book and they'd had a conversation about it. And then the, the, the daughter had gone off to university and had had a particular incident where um, a boy that she fancied and was hoping to have a relationship with had basically showed up at her dorm expecting casual sex and made it clear that he wasn't interested in a relationship, he just wanted to have casual sex with her. And she said in previously, she would have just said yes, basically to be polite, slash to, you know, in the hope, oh, you know, maybe... Maybe will it will turn into something. Something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but she didn't, she turned him away, which is a very brave thing to do. And she said that it was because... The phrase her mum used was that having read this book, she felt armed with permission. That's so interesting. And and I, I guess must be very gratifying to feel like enormously an actual yeah. difference in a real situation. I, I just thought that was such a beautiful phrase yeah, as well, armed yeah. with permission. That's so um, yeah. Because it's a thing about young women that, and I remember this as having um, once been a young woman, even an unusually contrarian one. I'm probably like 99th centile contrarianism. Um Young women are so desperate to please. It's something that men don't always realise. That actually young women are so tend to be so acutely sensitive about social status, about what people think about them, about being normal, about being nice, about being liked. It's, it's such a sort of driving force. It's something that people tend to lose a little bit with age. You get a little bit more sort of mm. grouchy and independent. But when you're young, that matters so much. And to so therefore to say, oh, well, they're consenting. Like, yeah, in a legal sense, I guess they are. But it, as you said earlier, there's there's consent and there's sort of a fully orbed sense of what you want and what actually yes. is the best thing for you. Yeah. And, and I just feel like perhaps that young lady sort of moved from just the quote-unquote consent to something that was a bit more actually, I, I've recognised a bit more of the value I have and that I don't have to yes. just submit to something that isn't actually... I, 
I, I want to be a bit naughty though because Bell, you said you don't necessarily agree with everything in the book. It sounded like, or it sounded like you might be saying that. Can I can I ask you what 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 some of those things might be? Just and see what Louise has to say. I think my or you, the answer may be really simple because you may be saying that's not my job and that's not what you're intending to do. But I think we're um, I think there's a pitchfork where I, if I trace it back because you um, when you talk about um, sexual and physical violence perpetrated by men, you go very much down the evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology and sort of reject more of the sociological, you very much nature versus nature to really oversimplify it. Whereas I think naturally I would lean more towards the nature. So then anywhere that path takes you, my nature path takes me somewhere else. Um, perhaps is sort of where I'd go with that. But my main thing is I wonder if sometimes, sometimes I just wanted you to um, be a bit harder on men, basically. Really? Because I have people saying the opposite. Oh really? I just yeah. wonder if it's... I'm going around saying that all men are rapists and you're jabbing. <laughs> maybe, yeah, no, maybe. But sort of, you know, that you spoke about that final chapter. Listen to your mother, and you end it with a set of rules for women to do their best to stay safe, and um, those include don't get drunk with with men. Um, what other ones where they don't go on dating apps, things like that. And so I think for me. But again, this is where you might say, but this wasn't what I was trying to do. Is that all a bit defeatist? Is that just sort of naturalising? Um, well, you don't like the word patriarchy, but you know what I mean? Naturalising what we, what, you know, liberal feminists perhaps are calling patriarchy and just saying it is the way it is. Let them, you know, be. It's in their biological makeup. Women, you know, this is what you need to do about it. You're not the first to use the word defeatist. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's probably the most... From the feminist side, that's probably the most common criticism. Okay. And I think, I mean, maybe it is a little bit. But then I also think that it comes back to that thing about sort of recognising some of these essential truths about human beings. You know, we don't know of a society where there hasn't been sexual violence. Mm. We don't know of one where where it hasn't been committed 99%-ish by men. It may be that we've flipped the coin every single time and it's come up heads. Or it may be that there is something biological that's going on as well, which is not to say that isn't some nurture. I think it's nature and nurture. Okay. I think it's, I mean, I think that's the answer to basically every nature nurture question is that it's both. It's always both. And um, yeah. I suppose what I, yeah, so, so things like me advising women not to get um, drunk with men they don't know. Um, not drink, but get drunk, crucially. Um, which, you know, up until, I'm told, like the 1990s, the ladder era was completely common sense. Women wouldn't do that. It's quite a modern phenomenon to think that getting really, really um, sloshed in public is is, is, is normal thing to do. Um, is because I'm very sceptical of the capacity for education to rectify millennia of sexual violence, basically. And that is pretty much the only intervention that's really offered by the sort of standard liberal feminist position, that we have consent workshops, we have sort of cultural interventions of various kinds, like modelling good behaviour on television sort of stuff. And that if we can just sort of offer a different narrative and and challenge some of the um, uh, moral ideas that are assumed to be behind sexual violence, then everything will sort of come right. I don't think it's bad to do those things necessarily, but I'm very sceptical of whether or not that's going to work. And I think that actually what you need to be thinking more about is, I mean, obviously putting sex offenders in prison. I say this, difficult thing to do, but, yeah. you know, that's that's a very serious project. Keeping them in prison as well, that's something, another complaint I have with the government. Very, very short sentences often for some really, really dangerous offenders. Yeah, definitely. Um and it's also has to, unfortunately, you know, I would, I, on a moral level, I would love it if women could do whatever they wanted. They could get as drunk as they wanted. If they could, you know, go out late walking alone anywhere in the world, they should be able to do that. But realistically, they can't. And we all know, you know, that the, the things that we say to um, our friends and daughters, you know, like text me when you get home safe, you know, we all do that. Yeah. We all offer this kind of advice informally um but we tend not to say it publicly you're not supposed to sort of acknowledge that as an actual um 
set of directives. And I guess the thing I find frustrating about that, and this probably does partly go back to working in rope crisis and meeting some um, girls who didn't really have the guidance that I did and that a, a lot of us do, is some girls have never had anyone say that to them. No one's ever said, you know, doing these things is risky. And they're not being told it publicly. And so how are they supposed to know? Mm-hmm. You know, bearing in mind as well that the the peak age of victimization, the modal the, the modal age for rape victimization is fifty. It's younger than you think. So you're often dealing with women, girls, who have so little life experience and have frankly been lied to by the culture. <laughs> because I think that a lot of you know, going back to sex and the city, whenever a lot of cultural representations basically pretend as if men and women are basically the same. Think also of things like superhero films or whatever, where you see this like tiny woman, fifty kilos or something, you know, knocking out this enormous man. Like even just something as basic as physical strength differences is frequently denied, and and it's also something that I think people just have less experience of, maybe because maybe we have smaller families, fewer siblings. You're less likely to see rough and tumble with your brothers. You're less likely to play physical sports or do physical jobs or whatever. You you really could be ignorant of quite how different quite how much of a physical advantage men have over women. If we don't tell girls this, how are they supposed to know? Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I can understand why some people will come back and say, but we should expect more of men, you know. Mm. But there is also that thing in me which says, but when you've got two drunk people, that's when probably that consent education talk is not really in the forefront of someone's mind. Mm. When you've got someone basically in the heat of arousal, let's be honest, that something biological is going on as well as, you know, and you can obviously hold people to account, but there is in a sense just the practical reality of what happens mm. and that there are sensible and less sensible things to do in, in that I can fully understand kind of that, that perspective. But I think there's still, I, I appreciate what Bell says about, but let's not let men off the hook here mm. because I don't want, yeah, you know, I, I don't want creepy Hugh Hefner's sort of doing their thing either, uh, and, you know, without any sort of restraint on mm. them. There's a sense in which I don't see your book as simply giving women advice about what to do, but you're also appealing to the monogamy. It, it makes demands on both sides, you know. Mm. Uh, it is about actually asking men to constrain themselves at, at some level. And that's, I mean, that's another critique I've had as well from, from um, feminist friends and so on, that, um, you know, on the one hand I'm saying that some unknown minority of men are sexually aggressive and particularly when they're young and it's sort of hard to educate them out of that. Um, it is a minority. That's the good news story. It really is a minority. Like Most men are completely safe. The problem is that if you're a woman walking out alone late at night, you have literally no idea who that is. So there's always a risk factor. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I'm saying, but here are, you know, here's why marriage is actually really good for women here's how you could you know various kind of social norms and and structures can actually channel men in better directions and i've had women say no hang on are you really expecting you know hugh hefner one example um to be to make a great husband one day you know do you not think that actually do you not think that actually sort of expecting women to form relationships with men who are actually really, really very horrible is a terrible thing to ask a woman. And I guess I say, well, I think we're just talking about different populations who shade into one another, you know. You've got men now who, even in a culture that excuses all kinds of sexual hedonism and and exploitation and whatever, still behave magnificently and still make wonderful husbands and fathers, you know. You've got those you've got those men who seem to just be sort of virtuous regardless of context. And then you've got men who probably need to be in prison for life. Sure. At the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you've got some space in between. And it's all and it's all shades of grey. And I think, for instance, that if you say had um, expect, I mean, the word I use it's like provocatively in the book is chivalry. If you had expectations placed on men saying, well, given that you are the stronger sex, given that you have certain um, sort of natural um, advantages, it is therefore your moral obligation to behave better even you know to behave more in a more sort of self-sacrificing way all of this i think that somewhere in that gray zone 
some men would make themselves into the best husbands and fathers mm. and some wouldn't and that's just life I think I don't think that there is a utopian option here I think that there are better and worse incentive structures that you can put in place and I think that our current set aren't up to the job that's really interesting I think my sort of life's wick <laughs> I'm, I'm too young to have a life's wick but um I am so passionate about women feeling like um, Christianity does not need to be in any way oppressive or strip them of empowerment or anything like that because um, to me, and so I've got a, a background in biblical studies, so I'm sort of quite narrow focused, that goes against everything that um, the, G- the Jesus movement was about. And I'm so interested, and I was chatting to a researcher about it just the other week, about how when Christianity first swept, came onto the scene and it was all very grassroots and it was, you know, absolutely blowing up in certain cities. Um, it was an absolute revolution for women. Yeah. And um, and that's why it was predominantly women. Yeah. It was predominantly vulnerable people and within that were women. And, and it was about making sure that they were safe, they were valued, they were seen, all of that sort of thing. But then that's what... So what you could say is... Um, that's the Christian faith right at the beginning, right when it was bubbling up. So actually, maybe it's unfair of me to even call it the Christian faith, you know, um, the way or whatever. Um, it was about, say, maybe it's similar to what you're saying, is it was about um, basically telling men to behave better, expecting more of them because there's, you know, the dignity of every human being, there's value placed upon women. So it's about not it using people as possessions, not exploiting people, not um, using and abusing people, all of that. And that's kind of similar-ish to what you're saying. Has that majorly surprised you that you come in alignment in certain ways? I'm not saying in every way with that. Because that's one of the most attractive things about Christianity to me Mm. is um, how empowering it is for me as a woman. Mm. It wasn't something that I was as aware. I, I didn't know as much about the first sexual revelation. Right, it's you know, is the, yeah. yeah the Christian sexual revolution of the first yeah. century. Yeah, um, until I started writing this book, and also actually subsequently, I read Francis Kyle Harper's writing. Yeah, yeah, um, and I mean, I should say, I mean, I call myself Christian agnostic. Anyone who's raised in this culture, obviously, is deep, deeply mm. has Christianity deep in their bones. Some Hollandsville, thank you for that. Who's another right? Yeah, who's another guest on this podcast? <laughs> yes. Um, and so I'm sure to some extent that was sort of in the background for me. I mean, just the idea that um, women's vulnerability is not something to be despised, but is something to be protected. That is basically a, a fundamentally Christian idea. It's yeah. not something that, you know, the Romans thought, for instance. Nope. And the idea that, say, um, the the idea that, say, a slave woman's sexual violation is 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 abhorrent again that is that is an idea that comes with christianity and was absolutely not by any means universally recognized mm-hmm. in the ancient world or indeed in you know very many other cultures and that yeah i think is fundamental to, to, to feminism i mean i i actually have a long essay about this coming up recently which i think i'll get in a lot of trouble for but i really do think that um feminism comes out of christianity feminism is completely reliant on Christian moral principles and I think that feminists who set themselves up in opposition to Christianity you know the Handmaid's Tale kind of representation Mm. of this sort of um, I mean people forget that the Handmaid's Tale was really written about the Iranian revolution but the the imagery from the TV show and so on is all about Puritanism and and, and sort of setting up Christianity as the bogeyman Um, I think that view completely misses the the, the 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 legacy of Christianity that is in, that is still very evident within feminism, and I think that actually feminists who set themselves up in opposition to Christianity, this is particularly true in America, where obviously Christian right is much more sort of um, fierce and forced, are soaring off the branch which they sit. Because actually, if you really sort of I, the process of dechristianization that starts in the nineteen sixties, where I mean doesn't start it accelerates in the nineteen sixties, it starts earlier than that. I mean. Um, even in the 19th century, you've got falling away of 
Christian belief, right? And that's what Matthew Arnold was writing about in Dover Beach. But in the 1960s, you have that sharp acceleration. And I think it's Tom Holland who's described this as being something like a second reformation. Like that's how big a, a historical mm. event it is. And I am extremely um, nervous about what full dechristianization means. And I don't think enough people think about what it actually means. Because I think so many um, secular progressives don't realise quite how deeply Christian their thinking is. And they don't realise quite how quite how unique actually the set of ideas inherited to Christianity are in terms of, say, you know, the radical sort of spiritual equality of men and women and of rich and poor and, and the fact that um, the vulnerable people shouldn't be exploited, they should be protected. You know, these kind of really fundamental ideas, what we call human rights in a silly kind of, you know, they're not human rights. They're, yeah. they're, they are um, a culturally unique concept. Theological premises. Yeah. Um, I think that there are lots of things, this is what my upcoming essay for First Things is about, I think that there are lots of things that feminists can quite rightly feel very un- sort of dismayed at within Christianity for yeah. the abortion being the big one. Mm-hmm. That is the big one. And that's why, of course, it's such a big issue in America in particular. Yeah. And that's so much, and that's why women show up dressed in handmaid's outfits in protest of um, dogs and so on. I also think that the abortion was a live political issue in the first century and infanticide was a live political issue in the first century. And that was actually one of the main ways in which, um, you know, Christians going to rubbish heaps and rescuing exposed infants was um, a a feature of the early church. Mm -hmm. I don't think that you can have a religion which sees vulnerability as valuable to the extent that Christianity does without reaching the conclusion that the unborn child also is worthy of protection. I don't think you can do that. And the problem, therefore, with trying to make arguments in favour of abortion that are not, you know, protecting the health of the mother or in terrible cases of tragedy... You know, this sometimes has to be sort of you can you can defend abortion, I think, in sort of self-defense terms and say that there are some situations in which it would be legitimate for someone to kill in self-defense. For that, I think, is I think that that that's that's fine. The problem is when you start making um, arguments in defense of abortion, when you say things like the fetus is just a parasite, it's like having a wisdom tooth removed. You know, there is no moral meaning whatsoever in this. That, I think, is when you're getting to the point where you say, okay, if you're trying to do away with this moral principle that vulnerability is valuable and worthy of protection, where next? Because feminism it depends on that idea. What is to stop men, you know, re-paganized men, right, in some completely de-Christianized future, turning around and saying, but hang on, women are small and weak and made smaller and weaker by pregnancy and childbirth why on earth should you have the same political value as as men do which has been the conclusion reached by many by many societies you know i think that i i don't i don't think that anti-christian feminists have thought have thought it completely through it's a bit like the disenchantments again strip meaning away from everything and see where it see where it takes you yeah yeah in a way everything you said makes perfect sense at the same time it sounds so odd uh because if you say that, you know, there are so many feminists who haven't understood the Christian roots or where their own feminism came from and now stand essentially against, you know, traditional Christian sort of, you know, views on sexuality and so on. And and to that extent, if you run into anything, you will, you will run into sort of, you know, potentially very valid critiques of the way the Christian church has sometimes handled things, you know. The the, um, the the kind of places that women were put who had children out of wedlock, you know, in in Ireland. So you know, there are documentaries coming out. There are things. So it's not as though Christendom has some sort of perfect record on this, right? No, it's not it? So 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 you can understand why there are people who are saying, "Look what Christianity did. Are we better off without that sort of puritanical, you know, Victorian era sort of?" But are you saying that? It's throwing the baby out with the bathwater to sort of sort of rail against that and not realise that with the good that came, there were obviously going to be, I suppose, the things that weren't weren't good as well. I think there may be only so many ways of structuring an enormously complex civilization. 
And I think that trying to construct the sort of new atheist project, you know, of trying to construct an entirely rationalist, secular sort of um, guiding philosophy for society, I think has proved to be an abject failure. Mm -hmm. I mean, what we've learned, I think, in the last 20 years post-new atheism is that when people don't have religion, they um, just turn politics into religion and it actually makes politics much worse. (laughs) Um, People are less religious in a sense, they just get religious about other things. Exactly, and I would say in a more dysfunctional way and often lose the good bits of religion, like community and whatever, and and, um, hold on to some of the more dysfunctional bits. So I sort of think that if you are trying to come up with um, uh, philosophy or institutions or whatever, which best protects people's interests, you have to actually find some real examples that have really worked. I don't think it I don't think it's possible to just design something on the back of an envelope and think you can impose this on people and it's going to be great. I think what you have to do is actually look around at all societies that exist now and have ever existed and say they seem to do it well, they seem to do it well, they seem to do it less well. You know, it has to be operating actually within the real lived world. And you know, we've never had a society that didn't have religion in some in some way. I think the idea that you can just lose it is the birds. Um, the question I think is just is just pick your poison mm. really and I think that I think that what we're seeing now as Christianity recedes is not a transition to you know the rationalist utopia imagined by um, new atheism it's actually something much more pagan I think that in many ways what we're returning to is something that obviously, you know, many differences, we're talking about thousands of year gap here, but something that actually looks a lot more like Roman religion. Interesting. With potentially some of the moral ideas that come with that. I, I guess my sort of question as we start to wrap this up is, you've painted to some extent a rather bleak picture in the book of where we're at. But you have some stories that seem kind of hopeful that you've kind of given some people a sense of of their own meaningfulness and and that they can take control again of their decisions and that sort of thing. Um, do you do you see hope? Do you see? Do you think we're kind of going to be living in this sort of morass of kind of materialistic views on sexuality? You know, pornography, filled, you know, coming on every screen of a young person. You know, or or do you think? the pendulum will swing, people will kind of learn we can't keep living this way, that we weren't designed in a sense, whether you think that's biologically or spiritually to, to live this way. Um, what what do you think the future might look like in that sense? Um, I think there is probably a backlash already underway and partly because people keep asking me if I think there is one and given that everyone keeps talking about it all the time, that sort of suggests that it's happening. <laughs> in the I guess it's something was happening, maybe. Um <laughs> And also because that is generally what you do see historically. You tend to see this kind of roller coaster between periods of licentiousness and prudishness and whatever. So it would make sense. That's tend to be it tends to be how humans work. So yes. that, you you would expect that. I guess the difference now is of course that our technological landscape is completely different. Because we have the pill and we have the internet and we have all these other things that our ancestors didn't have. So that's obviously going to change things. I mean the 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 hopeful point is that people do still have the ability to behave differently you know you can you can just not watch porn you can get married you cannot have casual sex like it's it's difficult and i think you know and i don't want to just do that crude sort of um you have absolute agency you know on your way thing because we know that actually agency is severely constrained and that that everything that we're dealing with shades of gray and trade-offs or whatever but people can choose differently they can there is some scope for individual autonomy and people are already doing that um you know at small scale and i guess what happens you know change happens among individuals in small rooms yes and then eventually that scales and so you see sort of if we're talking about re the re-enchanting of um of sex of the sexual revolution you see that happening bottom up rather than top down I mean, that's an interesting question, whether it's a sort of... I don't know about the socioeconomics of it. 
I wonder if what might be happening to some extent is that the sexual counter-revolution is sort of an elite thing in the way that the sexual revolution actually was, or at least trickled down to some extent. Definitely. Ideas. That might happen again, I don't know. Um, it definitely isn't coming from business interests or whatever. I mean, this is definitely, I think, I mean, this is a very cool theme in my book that I think um, a lot of what's driving this is, is capitalism. And um, when people are resisting it, they tend to be sort of pushing against the market. Um, which is, I think, to be applauded. And I think individuals, yes, individuals acting against those kind of um, fast forces are, is to be applauded. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's all playful. <laughs> all to playful. I am really intrigued, actually, because I do feel like there's a little shift and I'm intrigued to see where that bubbles up, how it bubbles up, how it changes things, what pushback is to it. Or actually, if a bit like you've encountered with your book, um, people will want to disagree with it more than they do actually disagree with it. Um, but we better, as much as I want to talk to you for hours and hours. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing to chat to you. Yes, it's been a really, really interesting conversation. Thank you. Um, if you want more from Louise, do check out the links with today's show. Uh, you can find her book and uh, you've got a uh, podcast and uh, video channel as well where you're doing some really interesting interviews and things at the moment. And I think there's another book on the horizon. Is that true? That you, we may get a, a sequel. I'm supposed to finish the proposal tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's a watch this space situation. It's on its way. We'll get you back, maybe once it's published, uh, and, uh, and so you can tell us about it. But thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Reenchanting. In these early episodes, it makes a huge difference if you can rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, and it helps others to discover the show. Thank you. You can also find more episodes, articles, and resources at seenandunseen.com. See you next time. Hold up. 